Good evening, everyone. This huge record-breaking crowd here at McNichols Arena about to bear witness to one of the most spectacular events in professional basketball, the slam dunk contest. For a league that got very little respect, the ABA always knew how to put on a great show. High-flying, fast-paced, over-the-rim kind of stuff. We were Showtime before Showtime ever got near L.A. The three-point shot, the multi-million dollar contracts, the tomahawk dunks, all those things found a home in the ABA. The ABA was a long shot, a cult app, the invisible league. If you didn't buy a ticket, chances are you didn't see us play. But man, could we play. And now the doctor goes to work. Before we came along, who would have thought anyone could dunk from the foul line? Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, all right, all right. How are you doing, everybody? It's your pal, Tim, and uh, let's get this uh, show on the road, shall we? It's Good Seats Still Available. Yeah, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. And we're getting into hoops and a great, great clip from an awesome uh, hour-long documentary sets the stage for us. Our guest this week is Jim O'Brien. And if you grew up in the uh, Pittsburgh area, you have uh, been reading and still continue to read Jim O'Brien's work uh, and works in the realm of pro sports, uh, perhaps most prodigiously. Uh, in the realm of basketball, but uh, a Pittsburgh uh, legend, uh, a a pro basketball writer, Hall of Fame uh, inductee, uh, many, many sports, uh, decades and decades of uh, of experience. And two of the the great tomes that uh, Jim has written is our excuse for our conversation this week with with Mr. O'Brien. And uh, the books are, well, in particular, the first one, uh, of interest is called Looking Up from the ABA to the NBA, the WNBA the, to the NCAA, a basketball memoir. Uh, and that's uh, that was sort of the uh, the table set. And the uh, second that came out in, I think it came out in 2018, I think. And the one that just recently came out is called Looking Up Once Again, a basketball memoir, uh, which continues uh, the proceedings. And uh, this is a guy, Jim O'Brien, who has uh, been there, done that, uh, and many many times over uh, in the realm of lots of sports, but basketball in particular. We're going to get into that uh, that conversation in particular. Uh, one area of, uh, of great interest to us, of course, is the old ABA, a topic we've uh, danced around on a number of different occasions. But let's go deeper uh, into it uh, with uh, Jim O'Brien this week. Uh, the Long Shots, The Life and Times of the ABA is the documentary from which that initial clip that you just heard was taken. 1997 was the debut of that on HBO. And uh, the voice that you heard from that little clip probably shouldn't be a surprise if you listen very carefully. Yes, it's one, Julius Irving, Dr. J, perhaps one of the greatest and brightest lights uh, in all of ABA history, certainly in NBA uh, once the uh, merger was uh, consummated uh, in the uh, latter part of the, uh, the 70s. Um, and, uh, somebody, frankly, we'd love to have on this show at some point, the great Julius Irving. But, uh, before we get to that, our conversation this week with Jim O'Brien, we talk about 
uh, Dr. J. A couple of fond memories there. We could talk about folks like Connie Hawkins, uh, and not just necessarily of the uh, ABA, but uh, more closer uh, to home, Pittsburgh and the Pipers and the Wrens, uh, in which uh, Connie Hawkins played. Uh, the ABL is, uh, is a topic we talk about, uh, Abe uh, Saperstein and, and uh, the formulation of that. Uh, we get into a little bit of the uh, uh, small concentric circle, that is Pittsburgh and basketball. Of course, not a gigantic one, but uh, all of those topics and more in particular, again, rooted in the ABA. Some great uh, conversation coming up with our pal Jim O'Brien. And uh, it's the first, I hope, of, uh, of a bunch uh, of discussions around uh, memories of basketball past. And uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful chat, and uh, it's coming up in just a few moments' time. Please uh, enjoy it uh, coming up. Let's get to a couple of uh, memorable uh, sponsors that uh, help us get uh, a little bit uh, sort of more, you know, ready for a conversation around the ABA and, and points uh, uh, previously domiciled. Uh, let's talk about streakersports.com, the purveyors of sports culture. Promo code at streakersports.com is good seats for 15% off all of your purchases. Just dial up streakersports.com and go to the, uh, let's see, the, the uh, shop section. And in the shop section, uh, among many other things, is the defunct leagues subsection. And of course, when you go to the defunct leagues subsection, you want to go to ABA. Not that there aren't other great sports leagues represented there, but go to ABA and oh my goodness, you will find uh, it's got to be at least 45, maybe 50 different shirts uh, from various times and places in the old American Basketball Association and, and multiple versions of shirts, depending on the team. As well, for example, the Pittsburgh Pipers, probably one that's uh, near and dear to Jim's heart. There are two great looks here. One is the 1967 Pittsburgh Pipers uh, uh, logo. Uh, and then there's a wordmark T-shirt as well, also from the, the 1967 era. The same treatment will be found for teams like the Oakland Oaks. You'll see a logo version of the shirt and then a cool wordmark version of said shirt. Same with the New Orleans Buccaneers or the New Jersey Americans. Remember them, the predecessor to the New Jersey, now Brooklyn Nets. Uh, and lots of different sort of variations and flavors. The Los Angeles Stars, uh, the Washington Caps, uh, and of course, the Floridians, the, the 1970 Floridians. Yes, they were so good. They only, they didn't need a, a demarcation. They just needed one name, the Floridians. Something we're going to get into, hopefully, in another episode, because that, that story is just not so by and of itself. The spirits of St. Louis are represented. All of them and more. The San Diego sales, they go on and on and on. Great, great T-shirts at streakersports.com. Promo code GOODSEATS for 15, he says, percent off all of your purchases uh, there early and often. Now, if you don't like just the plain old T-shirts, and you know the, those shirts are, are wonderful by themselves, you want to go to the next level. You want to go deeper. You really want to show all your friends in the hood that not only are you a retro ABA fan, but you you go you go to the nth degree and you want to wear that ABA replica jersey. Well, oh friends, do I have a site for you? Of course, it's our well. What used to be known as Five Hundred Three Sports, now known as 
Royal Retros. Yeah, royalretros.com. It's R-O-Y-A-L, retros, R-E-T-R-O-S, royalretros.com. The uh, formerly known as 503 Sports. Uh, and uh, now you just uh, there have to go to the ABA collection. And my goodness, you will find so many of the teams from the old ABA in awesome, handcrafted, custom-made, yeah, you can get your name and number as you like on the back as well, jerseys from some of the greatest teams in ABA history. For example, those Floridians, you know they were domiciled in Miami. Well, sort of in Miami. I think it was a little, I think there was a, a sportatorium, which wasn't actually in Miami proper, but but I, my goodness, you've got two different versions of the Floridians jersey there available for you. The Pipers, you can get two different versions, a home and, and away version there. The Spirits of St. Louis, uh, the Utah Stars, too cool. There's a, there's a, a white with sort of a, uh, I don't know, a, a lined, a curved line thing with sort of a stylized stars thing. And there's another one, a blue one, which I'm guessing was the away jersey, which just has sort of a more classic uh, block letter Utah with a star. And in the middle of the star is a number. Um, oh, my goodness. These are just you can tell that the quality not only is in the actual uh, fabric and, and the creation, but the attention to detail and looking at the uh, the the photos and and getting these these uniforms right, they've really done uh, their work uh, uh, and done their homework there at RoyalRetros.com. I'm looking at the Kentucky Colonels jersey, the blue home uh, blue uh, away jersey uh, has sort of the stylized uh, letters Kentucky in the number in the front, while the home version simply is the same style lettering but it just says Colonels with the number in the front. Which, whatever one you want to get, you, or get them both, for God's sakes, by all means. Again, that's royalretros.com, the former four, 503 Sports, of course. The king of throwbacks. They're still the king of throwbacks, despite the new name. And the promo code there is SEATS. Just SEATS for 10% off all of your purchases there at royalretros.com. So thank you to streakersports.com, promo code GOODSEATS, and uh, royalretros.com, promo code SEATS for your uh, kind sponsorship of this show and this particular episode as we talk about the ABA a whole bunch, but just pro basketball in general. Lots of great hoops memories. The, a starter kit, if you will, our first ever, maybe hopefully a few others to come, conversation with the great basketball writer of many, many decades. Let's uh, dial the uh, the map, the GPS, whatever we're uh, using uh, to go to the Pittsburgh metropolitan area. Here's our conversation with the great Jim O'Brien. We had, geez, way back in February. Sorry for only getting to it now, but my goodness, worth the wait. Here it is. Please, as always, enjoy. Let's set this up for a second. You're you're kind of like the dean of like sports writers in Pittsburgh, right? I mean, your 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 productions are are voluminous, and maybe a little background as to sort of what your career. Uh, has been and uh, what sort of puts you sort of in that pantheon of Pittsburgh uh, sports writers? Well, I'm 78 years old. I'm still going strong. I'm in my office right now. I've been writing since six o'clock this morning for a new book that I'm working on about this, what was on in Pittsburgh during this 2020-2021 virus pandemic and how it affected and impacted all sports and, and the local scene and so forth. So I'm working on that. 
But where I'm sitting right now, I can see pictures on the wall from the New York Post front pages whenever, and pictures of Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. That was the highlight of my career. I, I had a ringside seat for the first fight of the century, the Frazier versus Ali fight. And uh, I'm very... I'm also the only one who's still living. You know, that fight was held in 1971. I was 29 at the time. So I was the youngest writer at ringside. You know, I was sitting next to old Nat Fleischer, who put out Ring Magazine. So I was in good company, and directly behind me were Burt Lancaster, Frank Sinatra, Diana Ross, you name it. It was quite a star-studded cast that night. So it was a big deal for me, and I like to be reminded of it. I can also see a book stand here that has about 30 books that I have written since 19, you know, since about 1979. So I've done a lot of writing, a lot of work, and I still enjoy it. So uh, give me a sense of, of uh, the beats and the, 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 uh, the papers and or the publications that you were working with, right? So boxing... Uh, you know, clearly uh, more event status, I think, arguably, than maybe even even today is, although I'm sure some enthusiasts would disagree. Um, but boxing, but also all kinds of, of sports and pro, pro uh, endeavors. Did you have sort of specific beats and or, shall we say, uh, favorites along the way? I purposely covered all sports. When I started out on a daily newspaper in Miami, for instance, I covered High lie. I covered uh, horse racing, dog racing, alligator wrestling, high lie, you name it. I, I was there. And one of the things that I did, and I did it on purpose, was I wanted to cover all sports. I did not want to be a one-trick pony. I was more interested in people than I was in the games. And in fact, uh, we just had a Super Bowl and the last I've attended eight Super Bowls, and the last one I went to was played between the New York Giants and the Baltimore Ravens at James Raymond Stadium in Tampa. So I know that scene well. And most of the old sports writers, and I used to seek out the old sports writers. I like to talk to them. I like to hear their stories, and hopefully I liked to learn from them. And most of them are all gone. I saw that Jerry Green of the Detroit News was at his 55th Super Bowl. He's the only one. There was about eight guys that had covered all the games whenever I was still on the beat. But I went from Miami to New York, where I stayed for nine years. I covered boxing. I covered the hockey teams, the New York Islanders and the New York Rangers. I covered the two basketball teams, the New York Nets of Dr. J., and the New York Knicks of Willis Reed and Bill Bradley and uh, Dave DeBusher and Walt Frazier and Earl Monroe, Jerry Lucas. So I really covered, and, and my books on basketball that you alluded to were basically stories about all the great players that I had the opportunity to meet and talk to. Uh, on the wall in my room where I'm talking to you right now, there are signed photos from some of my favorites, Wilt Chamberlain, Jerry West, Michael Jordan, and right below that, Steelers owner Art Rooney. So, you know, I consider myself a lucky man. I moved among giants. I was, I'm only five, eight and a half, 
but I moved among some of the biggest sports personalities in history. And like I said, I don't remember any details of most of the games that I sat at courtside or witnessed from the press box, but I remember the people, and that's what I was interested in. I liked writing stories because I like writing uh, stories of people who had overcome obstacles and uh, who came from have-not situations and became successful. And uh, I continue to do so. Well, some some of the most memorable uh, uh, stories and uh, and remembrances in your in your looking up books, plural, um, emanate from I think a league uh, that in particular kind of embodies a lot of that stuff, sort of that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, altered and 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 not sort of you know and trying to fight their way through and 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 make a make a go out of it. And that's that's the ABA, which you know is probably you know maybe in all the sort of things that we've sort of explored over the last couple of years in the show is continues to be very um, shall we say polychromatic uh, in its uh, <laughs> in its history, its stories, and, and I think plenty of things still yet frankly, to sort of be fully uh, unearthed and, and arguably still underappreciated if you, uh, you know, there's plenty of uh, a number of veterans that still aren't not getting any uh, sort of that equality uh, in in benefits and stuff from from the NBA. But maybe you could circle around what this ABA thing was in, in particular around the time of your career and how you kind of latched on to some of it, because some of the more vivid stories of in your books really sort of revolve around some of these characters that are in the ABA? Well, I always liked covering outlaw leagues. For instance, just this past week, uh, I saw Tom Moore on the sideline uh, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He's one of their offensive coordinators and coaches. And it said he's been in the NFL for 41 years. But in people interviewing him, nobody mentioned about the fact that he once coached with the New York star of the World Football League, whose head coach was Bay Perilli, Vito Bay Perilli, and uh, some of the players included uh, Jerry Philbin and, uh, and John Sauer of the New York Jets and uh, people like that, because I like covering those leagues because they were always full of characters, and the ABA certainly had more than its share of characters. It had some headliner players such as Rick Barry, even had Will Chamberlain briefly, Billy Cunningham, Joe Caldwell. But most of all, it had players who were getting a second chance because of a second league. And what was great about it for a writer was that they needed attention. So they were not wary of sports writers. And by the way, Paulo, polychromatic, I've never used that book in 31 books that I've worked on. I'm going to have to use that in my next book. I wish I had a trademark on it, but, but, but have at it, Jim. Yeah, I'll make people think I'm smart. But uh, that's another thing. I like to write simply. I like to write to be understood. And as I'm sitting here this morning, I, like, I take pride in the fact that I work hard, even today, at getting the best stories. Uh, I'll go places other writers wouldn't go. Uh, even the night before the Ali Frazier fight, I was one of six writers who were summoned to the room at the New Yorker Hotel by Muhammad Ali. Can you imagine that today? I mean, I don't think that uh, Tom Brady would invite anybody to his hotel room on the eve of the Super Bowl, but I had experiences like that. 
uh, in Tampa. I remember covering a doubleheader in Tampa. Florida A&M, a traditionally all-black college, the Rattlers of Jake Gaither, were playing Tampa University that doesn't quite exist anymore. And the next day, the Boston Patriots, as they were then known, played the Miami Dolphins. Tampa was looking to get an NFL franchise. And after the game on Saturday night, I got to visit the room of Jake Gaither, one of the storied coaches like Eddie Robinson of Grambling. And I got there because a man named Bill Nunn Jr., who was then a scout for the Pittsburgh Steelers, invited me to join him because he knew all those coaches in the black schools. And that's why the Pittsburgh Steelers hired Bill Nunn Jr. to scout for them. And this past weekend at the Super Bowl, Bill Nunn Jr. was inducted or will be inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a contributor. And that brought that all back to me, you know, doing that. But the ABA, you know, there was a time when I was the president of the ABA Writers Association. Wait a minute, that was a thing? Um, I guess it was a thing. Oh, yeah. Sure. I was often referred to, because I wrote so much about it, as Mr. ABA. At the time, I was the editor of Street and Smith's Basketball Yearbook. I did that for 30 years. Oh, the Bible. Sure. Yeah, it was called the Bible of Basketball. It was the number one selling basketball magazine in America. That same year, I wrote a book called ABA All-Stars when I started out in New York. I wrote for Basketball Weekly, Basketball News, the Football News. Some friend of mine who's a collector said that every magazine he picked up from that era, he found one of my bylines in it. I wrote for everybody and anybody, and that's how I raised the money for my daughters to go to college. I saved all the money that I made for, as a freelance writer. The ABA is still alive because there are still players that are alive from that league, although they seem to be dying fast. Some of them have run afoul of not having any money. Uh, I just heard from the daughter recently of uh, Bird Averett. William Bird Averett, who one year was the leading scorer in the nation sure. at Pepperdine University. And when he died, he didn't have any money. And uh, I sent a check for $100 to his daughter to help with the funeral expenses because I felt I owed him that because he had always been so pleasant with me, so helpful, eager to talk, even whenever he was having physical ailments and wasn't doing so well and everything else. I mean, he was still cheerful. He was still fighting the good fight. And people like that appeal to me. You know, I want to write their stories. At the same time, just this week, I talked to some former football players who were terminally ill. And they asked me not to write about that. And I told them that I would honor that request. Because sometimes it gets confusing. You know, I know that I look upon those situations as my next story. But I realize that it's their story. It's their life. And if if at this particular time they wish to keep it secret or to themselves and their families, then I have to respect that. And I think doing that sort of thing has served me well throughout my long career because the athletes that I dealt with, whether they were in the ABA, the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, the World Football League, 
I gained their trust. They knew I wasn't out to hurt them. I wasn't taking cheap shots. I had journalistic ethics, which are seldom talked about these days. But I think you should hold yourself to a high standard. And I also realized that if the players and coaches and owners trust you, you end up with better stories because they're not afraid to talk to you. Yeah, we, we you know we talk with, um, uh, for example, with uh, uh, broadcaster uh, uh, controversial and extraordinaire, depending on your perspective, uh, John Sterling, right? Uh, who I'm sure you came across in your in your days in New York. Uh, and, oh yes, right. And and you know with the with the the then you know gutty gritty New Jersey Nets as they were known then back in the day. Um, you know he recounted some stories about sort of how he was essentially you know as a as a team broadcaster. Uh, you know, kind of treated like part of the team and the family, literally like right down to the end of the bench sometimes. Um, and it, I, I guess it speaks to maybe a different era, but also maybe the league itself being uh, so uh, new and brash and, and looking for, to your point earlier. Uh, I'll tell you two quick like stories about Dr. J, which show you examples of that situation. One day I was in the locker room of the New York Mets. I covered the team. And I had my daughter with me. Her name was Sarah. And she was about three years old at the time, maybe four. And she accompanied me into the locker room where I was interviewing Brian Taylor. And Dr. J saw her. I wasn't talking to Dr. J, but he got up. He walked across the locker room. He went into a cooler, pulled out an orange soda, uncapped it, brought it over, and handed it to Sarah. Well, today, Sarah is Dr. Sarah O'Brien. She is a leading pediatric oncologist, hematologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. She's published in many journals. She's a good writer. I'm proud of that. And, of course, Dr. J is her favorite player. And one time I came across Dr. J at a celebrity golf outing in Pittsburgh, and I was with some of my colleagues, and when Dr. J was walking down the fairway, he spotted me. This was years after I had covered him and the team. But he was always one of my favorites. In fact, I have his jersey framed on the wall, number 32, as I, I can see it from where I'm sitting. And I walked over to Dr. J, and he walked over to me, and he gave me a big hug. And most of my colleagues were confused, you know, like they, they weren't used to seeing this kind of situation. You know, a sports writer being embraced by an athlete. So I asked him, I told him about Sarah and how she'd become a doctor and so forth. Well, at the time she was going to graduate school for, or school of medicine. And I had a notebook and I asked him if he would write an encouraging note to Sarah. So he takes my notebook and he says, Dear Sarah, I understand you want to be a doctor like me. Best wishes, your friend, Julius Dr. J. Irving. And, you know, that's the kind of guy, that's the kind of really, one time I said to him, I saw this woman in the end zone at the Nassau Coliseum. I said, who, who is that woman who's always jumping up and going crazy when you do something? And he said to me, that's my mom. He said, you've got to meet her. You'd like her. Now, a lot of athletes would dismiss their mother or they'd just say, oh, that's my mother or something like that. And I remember seeing him at All-Star Games years later in the hallways outside the locker rooms and so forth. And Dr. J would say, stay here. Stay right here. I'll be right back. 
and he would go and get one of his kids, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. He'd bring them to me because he wanted me to see his kids. And, uh, you know, I cherished those kind of memories. I cherished that when I covered the Knicks in the playoffs in 1970, they won an NBA title for the first time in the team's history, and they haven't had much success lately. Oh, boy, no. And it's, it's hard to understand. But that year, you know, I got to cover them against the Milwaukee Bucks of Lou Alcindor at the time and, and Oscar Robertson, the Baltimore Bullets, Earl Monroe and Gus Johnson and Wes Unseld, and then finally the Los Angeles Lakers of my all-time favorite basketball player for some reason i adored him when i was a kid i was the smallest guy on the street but i loved will chamberlain and i got to meet him one time i was at a hotel in the catskill mountains where they had a summer basketball game of nba players to raise money for the support medical help for maurice stokes who was from pittsburgh and was a great great player his career and his life was ended all too briefly but Wilt came every year to play in that game, and somebody told Wilt that I was a big fan of his. And I was in my room one day reading a book, and it was a knock at the door, and I opened the door, and there in front of me stood seven foot one Wilt Chamberlain. And he said, I understand you're a fan of mine. And I said, yes, I am. He, he said, can I come in? I said, you certainly can. He stooped, his, lowered his head, and walked through the door and sat down, and I took a picture of him, and I'm surprised I had a camera with me. And uh, it's a great picture. It's a great profile of Wilt Chamberlain. And uh, got to be friends and, and really liked the man and, you know, find a softer side of a, of a big giant. Had a melodious voice, and uh, he would have, what was that word again, that he would have liked the... Tell me that word. Oh, yeah, he'd have loved a word like that. And he'd <laughs> well, have been impressed. We, we love Will for a whole bunch of reasons, because uh, as you probably know, he uh, was sort of the patron saint of this uh, not too long lasting uh, International Volleyball Association. Because he was a big. Right. Uh, you know, and so, you know, talk about sort of, uh, uh, you know, leagues and diversions and that kind of stuff. Um, but he, you know, but, but he, a character for sure. But but let me get, let me ask you. How so? You're mentioning you know players both ABA and NBA, and obviously, at the, afterwards, right? That merger sort of put them all sort of blended in together into one uh, supposedly stronger NBA. I mean, when you're doing when you're covering these teams and players and stuff, um, and these two leagues are going at it, um, is there any animosity or or uh, differences, I guess, in dynamics between maybe the players and the organizations of each of these two leagues, because it clearly seems that the NBA obviously has got sort of the, at least the stature, uh, and the ABA has got sort of the, you know, uh, go for it uh, with no sort of uh, uh, <laughs> worries about what might happen because they need the publicity. Uh, but well, the, I think it, the players... wasn't the strongest, was it, at that point either, so... Well, the players recognized the abilities of the really good players. It didn't matter which league they were in. And sometimes they played against each other in uh, the summer in outdoor courts and so forth around the country. Uh, they were all out for the same thing. They all wanted recognition. They all wanted better paychecks. The NBA players weren't making big money in those days. And uh, the NBA players recognized that there were great players in the ABA. You know, the the year after that 
absorption of the four ABA teams in the very first year afterward, the Portland Trailblazers won the NBA title led by Bill Walton, but two of their starting players were strong forward, power forward, Maurice Lucas, who had played at Marquette and had played with the Spirits of St. Louis. And the other, and the guard was Dave Twardzik, who had played for the Virginia Squires. And in the All-Star game that year, of the 10 starting players in the NBA All-Star game, five had come from the ABA. So there was, it took a while for the ABA players to gain the recognition, but what was good for a sports writer was they would submit to interviews openly. They wanted you to talk to them. They wanted you to write to them. And I was fortunate in that I was writing for the Sporting News. I wrote a column on pro basketball for the Sporting News for nine years. I wrote columns for the the Basketball News, the Basketball Times, the Basketball Digest. I was a busy boy. And, of course, the Street and Smith, which you refer to as the Bible of basketball. And let me say this. If anybody is interested in those people and wants to read different stories about them, it's, I don't write about games. I don't write about statistics. I write about people. And today, you know, most of the bookstores are closed. Walden Books, B. Dalton, Borders, they all went bankrupt. And it's hard to find a bookstore at a shopping mall these days. So I sell all my books directly. And the best way to get in touch with me is to Google Pittsburgh sports author Jim O'Brien. And uh, that's O'Brien with an E, not an A. And the thing is, you'll find my website, and it has information about all the books in the series. And I hope to I hope to stay healthy and I want to continue to buy it. I don't, I don't really make any money selling books anymore. I made a lot of money at one point selling books, but I don't print as many now, and I'm happy if I pay the printing bill because uh, I just want to write the stories. I have them. I'm sitting next to a room where I have 34 file cabinets, and they all are filled with folders and information about uh, different ballplayers. I just... Uh, did a story about the Rooney family this morning that owned the Steelers, and I have at least seven inches deep of folders about Art Rooney, Dan Rooney, Art Rooney Jr., and I have individual files on Terry Bradshaw and Franco Harris and Rocky Blyer and those people. And uh, I had an opportunity about uh, two years ago to fly to Calgary, Canada with Franco Harris sitting across from me in a private jet that someone had sent to pick us up to come and speak at a dinner in Calgary. So I had, I'm sitting across from Franco Harris like a priest in a confessional box. That's how close we were. And I talked to him for about 10 hours each way, going and coming. Nobody, not even his wife, has ever talked to Franco Harris for that long. And Franco was thought to be, and I, I would I would say it was true, he was a difficult interview whenever he was playing ball. He was quiet. He preferred he was sat in the corner of the locker room. He'd make a face as he saw a sports writer walking his way. And uh, I had all that time with him. And then with Rocky Blair, he was going to the Hall of Fame for a special ceremony in Canton, Ohio. And I asked him if I could ride with him 
And I said, I can interview on the way down, and I'll interview on the way back, and it won't take up any of your time because you got to go anyhow. And I sat and rode shotgun. Now, the thing about that is I, I learned to do that from Bill Bradley, Dollar Bill. When he was playing for the Knicks in, in that 1970 season, one day I was supposed to interview him after practice at a death school on Long Island because the Knicks didn't have a place to practice. They would practice at different gyms. Imagine that. And um, Madison Square Garden was always tied up with the circus or wrestling or boxing or something like that. So they had to find a, a gym to play in. And I was I had a Volkswagen, and I was ready to uh, meet him after practice. So he comes out to my car, and Bill Bradley says to me, give me the keys. I'll drive, and you can interview me on the way into the city. And from that day on, I mean, I learned a lesson that day, because you can't write when you're driving. I mean, so many people today are doing too many things when they're driving and they're distracted. But I learned a lesson from Bill Bradley, who was one of the smartest guys you'd ever meet in pro basketball or any sport. And I still, I still use that. Um, I had a guy drive me around a neighborhood on the north side of Pittsburgh the other day where the Roonies had lived, and I had him drive because of that lesson I had learned from Bill Bradley. How about um, how about uh, Pittsburgh and the ABA, uh, the intersection thereof, right? Because, um, you know, part of uh, the interesting story of the ABA and, frankly, Pittsburgh sports is is that you know basketball is uh, has a very strong vein uh, of history uh, in and around and through the city. Yet on a professional level, it really hasn't uh, ever really taken hold. But there were those years uh, that Pittsburgh and the ABA really were kind of conjoined, and, and there was a real sort of strong uh, affinity for it, and and it didn't stick. I'm curious as to your now, I don't know if you were in Pittsburgh at the time, but uh, I suspect that you're at least familiar and or uh, deeply understanding of the story and Connie Hawkins and all that stuff. With, with uh, No, with I, was, I was in Pittsburgh. I, I owned a newspaper at the time with a fellow named Bino Cook. Sure. You might remember from ABC Sports and so forth, the ESPN. So Bino Cook and I started a weekly tabloid called Pittsburgh Weekly Sports. And then he went to ABC, and then I went to the Miami News. But before I left, I got a phone call one day from a guy named Gabe Rubin, whom I had never met. And he was forming a basketball team in Pittsburgh to be called the Pittsburgh Pipers. And he called me and he, in a gravelly voice. He said to me, I understand you know something about basketball. I wonder if you come down and talk to me. So I went to his hotel in the inner city of Pittsburgh, and he had me help him recruit players signed players, and one of the players that he was lucky to get that first year out had played in Pittsburgh before with a team called the Pittsburgh Wrens of the American Basketball League. And your listeners would, be, would like to know that the ABL, as it was known, preceded the ABA, and the man who started it, the promoter who started it, was Abe Saperstein. You got it best known for starting the Harlem Globetrotters. He was a Chicago promoter, so right from your neighborhood. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that they, that they were lucky to do is they got this Connie Hawkins from Brooklyn who had been banned from playing in the NBA because he had 
consorted with gamblers when he was a high school student on the playgrounds in New York City. I mean, he he never helped to fix a game or anything like that. I mean, there are always guys hanging around basketball courts who slip a $20 bill to a kid playing basketball. They want to be his friend. They want him to know him and so forth. And Connie was was an innocent fellow. I mean, he wasn't guilty of any crime, but he was still banned from playing in the NBA, as was Roger Brown, Doug Moe, and a few other people who were among the early stars, Tony Jackson, of the ABA. So the ABA was a league that was filled with rejects, with guys who had a dubious background, or at least it was thought so, but they were good guys. And... uh, it was players who had played in the Eastern League. One of those guys, for instance, I just heard recently is falling on hard times, and that was Maurice Toothpick McCartley, who had played for the Wilmington, Delaware Bombers, Blue Bombers in the Eastern Basketball League. Uh, Jim Bayheim, the coach of the Syracuse basketball team, he was in that league at the time. Bobby Weiss, later to play in the NBA, he was in that league. So there were leagues in the Midwest, there were leagues in the East of uh, semi-pros, people who had jobs during the week but played for $50, $100 on weekends. And uh, the and, thing and about those guys... Was, sort of living on the dream, right? Almost sort of the precursor to the what the CBA became, right? Sort of the, you know, there's always that sort of last, last chance hoops, if you will. Yeah, well, CBA is where Phil Jackson got to coach, where George Carl got to coach, and where... Uh, um, Davis, Brad Davis, played for a team in Alaska and was ready to give up on basketball. And uh, the Dallas Mavericks, a new team, convinced him to give it one more try. And he became a star for the Mavericks. He still works for the Mavericks. He does color on their broadcast and so forth. And one year he was voted the most popular Dallas Maverick of them all. And the Dallas Mavericks, by the way, are owned by a guy from Pittsburgh named Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban didn't make his high school basketball team in Pittsburgh. And, and the joke in Pittsburgh is is that Mark Cuban couldn't make the basketball team, so he bought one. And, uh, of course, he became a big success, still is, and he's on Shark Tank. And he was in the news recently because uh, he made a decision not to play the national anthem in future Mavericks games. But then somebody must have talked to him, and he changed his mind, and, and they will continue to play the national anthem, and and I'm happy to hear that. But how, uh, how, did, how did Hawkins come to the attention? How, how did he get into the uh, the the Pipers and the which was the beginnings of the ABA at the same time? He played in Pittsburgh. Yeah, well, they, they won the championship. They won the first ABA sure. title with Connie Hawkins as the MVP. Right. How did how did, was, he get, how did he get into the franchise though? Like how would how did he hit the radar? Well, he was a leftover from the Pittsburgh Wrens. He, when he couldn't play in the NBA, he played for the Harlem Globetrotters, and he played for probably $15,000 a year for the Pittsburgh Wrens, which was short for Renaissance, and they lasted for a year and a half. Now, Bill Sharman was in that league as a coach of the Cleveland Pipers, and he had succeeded John McClendon as the coach of the Pipers, And John McClendon, not Bill Russell, was the first black to be a head coach in pro basketball. But there was a family in Pittsburgh named Littman, L-I-T-M-A-N. 
and they owned uh, some beer distributors and some bars and nightclubs and stuff like that. And they took a liking to Connie Hawkins. They did, they'd been involved with the Pittsburgh Wrens. So Connie stayed around in Pittsburgh because he sort of had been adopted by the Lippmans, and they looked after him, and they provided him with some financial support and so forth. So when the Pittsburgh Pipers came into being, they knew that Connie Hawkins had a popular following in Pittsburgh, and they brought him in. And I'll tell you a story about that, too. When Connie Hawkins was in the ABA, he was his lawyers, the Littmans, were still trying to get him into the NBA. And he promised me that if that happened, he would give me an exclusive on it. And I was working in Miami at the time, and sure enough, one evening I get a phone call, and it's Connie Hawkins, and he's calling to tell me that he's going to be playing for the Phoenix Suns. So I owed him one. And whenever it came time, see, he played for several teams in the NBA. He played for the Atlanta Hawks. He played for the Los Angeles Lakers. He played for the Phoenix Suns. And thus, he, he really didn't have a solid support base anywhere in the NBA. So I put together a nomination for him because I'd been on the uh, board of the nomination board for the uh, Pro Basketball Hall of Fame for three years when I was the editor of Street and Smith. So I, I solicited endorsements from about 15 NBA people, such as his coach, Cotton Fitzsimmons, and Richie Guerin, and Bill Sharman, and uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who said he was one of the best players he ever played against. So I put together a package and sent it to the Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. And the next year, Connie Hawkins was voted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. So we're tied together in, in that regard. And he'd once told my daughter, Sarah, the same Sarah that Dr. J had been nice to, he said, your dad is the best little white dude I know. <laughs> you talk about terms of endearment. That, that that's uh, that's an that's an amazing story, and yeah, obviously uh, Hawkins had gotten the uh, arguably the short end of the stick, and and there was the settlement with the NBA, and that that allowed him finally to come into the NBA, which was a lifelong dream of his and stuff, and and uh, you know, and the, and arguably the, the the charges about the about point shaving and stuff were found to be uh, I don't know if they were baseless, but certainly dubious uh, for sure. Um, right, they were indeed. Yeah. The thing about Connie is unlike so many of today's players. Connie never complained about it. I mean, he never, he never was complaining about his situation or anything else like that. He was sad about it. He was disappointed. But Connie had a, you know, you, when you read stories about Connie Hawkins, one thing that's often missing is he had a wonderful, warm sense of humor and a sense of himself. I mean, he had been a schoolboy star in New York. He had starred in games at Madison Square Garden. He was, he used to like to say this. He said, I was Dr. J before Dr. J. Uh, he was a high flying artist at the time of uh, when only someone like Elgin Baylor was doing some of the in the air antics that uh, made Connie famous. He had hands the size of Julius Irving's, and those hands are like twice, when they're extended, they were twice the size of my hands. My hands, by the way, are exactly the same. Sherman has an interesting history because not only did he coach the Cleveland Pipers, but he coached in the ABA, 
He coached in the NBA. He's one of four individuals, along with John Wooden, Tommy Heinsohn, and Lenny Wilkins, and uh, John Wooden. Did I mention John Wooden? Who were also who are in the Basketball Hall of Fame as both coaches and players. And when Abe Saperstein was considering using a three-point shot, he enlisted Bill Sharman, who was a great shooter, to determine the distance. Uh, Bill said it was, the original 25 feet was just slightly too long, and he convinced Saperstein that they should go from the back of the hoop instead of the front of the hoop to make that 25-foot distance. And the other thing is, Saperstein is the one who introduced the red, white, and blue ball to basketball because he did that with the Hardham Globetrotters and he did it with the ABL. And then, of course, when the ABA came along, uh, they adopted that same ball, prompting uh, Alex Hannum, who had been a great coach in the NBA and was now with the Oakland Oaks, to say when he was asked about the red, white, and blue ball and what he thought of it, he said, I think it belongs on the nose of a seal. So I don't think he would. But the players liked it. Players liked it. They said you could see the rotation of the ball and that it helped them with their shooting and so forth. So they were wonderful days. I, the worst night, one night at the Freedom Hall in Louisville, Kentucky, which was one of my favorite stops on the ABA tour, I was outside the locker room of the Kentucky Colonels, and I was interviewing Dan Issel, who had been the star of a playoff game with the Indiana Pacers of George McGinnis and Mel Daniels and Roger Brown and Freddie Lewis. And I'm interviewing him, and all of a sudden, I can't see. It, I'm looking into darkness. It was scary. I thought I was blinded by some action or something. And what had happened was some woman had shoved a cream pie in my face and, and turned it a few times while I was talking to Dan Issel. I wiped the cream off, and Dan Issel handed me his white towel. I, I was bewildered, and oh, I, I wanted to go home. <laughs> I have to write some stories. What happened? And it wasn't until two years later when I was in Las Vegas, of all places, at a college all-star game that Larry Donald of the Basketball News brought it up the incident. And I didn't know who did it. And he said, you don't know who did it. He said it was Ubi Brown's wife. And Ubi Brown, who's still at it himself, he's still on the court side describing the action in NBA games. Apparently his wife didn't like something that I had written about her husband, probably about his perm that he wore at the time or something like that. And uh, so I I had to go across the the parking lot to to the executive inn, the hotel that was the, where the offices of the colonels were stationed and also where my room was that night. So I walk into the hotel, and I've got on my press badge on my sport coat, and I walk into the lobby, and some old coot with a cane starts waving his cane at me because it said New York Post on my badge. And he said, you damn New York writers, you ruined it for the University of Kentucky. With that scandal stories and everything else. And I said, for God's sake, I wasn't even in New York at the time. Leave me alone. And I went to my room, and like I said, the last thing in the world I felt like doing was writing a story.
But a writer named Dick Young of the New York Daily News once told me, the readers don't care about your problems. You've got a story to write. You've got to sit down and write it. And that's just like this very morning. I mean, I got up this morning and I was determined to do this story for my next book. And uh, I knew that you were going to be calling me at about 11 o'clock. And I, my, my goal was to have this story finished by the time you called me. And I actually finished the story at about 11.01, and it's 10 pages long. It's 10 pages single-spaced. And uh, the funny thing about being 78 is, I swear to God, it's easier than ever for me to write. I can remember things 50 and 60 years ago in great detail. The scene the colors, the conversation. I never used a tape recorder because I wanted to listen. And if you listen, when you hear the first answer, you'll ask an appropriate question for the second time. So many writers today rely on their phones or on recording devices of one kind or another. And I never did that. I didn't want to be a stenographer. I wanted to be a writer. I never wanted to be an athlete. I I played sports all my life. I still continue to play sports, just try to stay in shape. But I, I recognize that I was just an, an average guy who liked sports. I wanted to be a sports writer. And that's one of the reasons why when I would go to the Super Bowl and stuff, I would always seek out the old guys, the veteran sports writers, the Furman Bisher in Atlanta, Edwin Pope in Miami, Blackie Sherrod in Dallas. Uh, Jim Murray in Los Angeles, Jerry Green and Joe Falls in Detroit, Brent Musburger in Chicago, uh, John Carmichael's, Ray Soans. Those names are familiar to you. I was once interviewed for a job as a columnist at the Chicago uh, Daily News, but uh, they stayed with a guy who was on the staff, a fellow named Dave Nightingale. And uh, I think they made the right choice, but it was nice. It was an honor to be interviewed. Well, we we could probably go forever on on lots of different topics, and and frankly, I might want to uh, we might want to talk about uh, doing that in a in a, in a future uh, conversation or two. But maybe just to, to sort of a, a fine point on sort of maybe maybe a last sort of uh, I guess a tentpole question. Um, you know, s- some of the stuff you've done recently, uh, going back to the ABA, uh, was uh, has been written and framed through the lens of. Uh, an event that happened just about two years ago, which was the uh, 50th anniversary. Uh, we kind of knew about uh, all of that. We've talked to people like Dan Issel and and uh, Bob Nedelecki and, and and a bunch of others in the ABA and stuff. And we're very uh, 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 honored to to have the opportunity to go. I, we couldn't make it at the last moment, but uh, I I can't imagine what um, uh, that uh, uh, that gathering of former ABA greats uh, was like, but. Uh, I guess I'd love to hear through your um, your lens, sort of uh, the emotions and the memories. Uh, I can't, you know, some of them I'm sure were just absolutely fantastic and wonderful and 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 uh, and happy. But I gotta also think that, uh, as we kind of alluded to earlier, some of them are also wistful, especially uh, as some of these players uh, fall on harder times and or health issues. And frankly, uh, I guess still fighting the fight against the NBA to get sort of included in to their recognition and pension and all that kind of stuff and benefits. 
Yeah, sometimes they remind me of the steel workers in Pittsburgh who the mills have been closed here for so many years, and there were people for years who sat on park benches nearby still waiting for the mills to open again. And uh, the ABA players are a dying breed. And one of the things that came away from that uh, reunion, and I've been to the 30th reunion and the 50th reunion, and I also went to reunions that were held by the Pittsburgh Pipers and by the Kentucky Colonels. And the reunion of the Kentucky Colonels, the 50th anniversary, was the best reunion of them all from my standpoint. And I had an opportunity to visit with players, and one of the things that that, uh, was different was that players that I had never interviewed when I was covering the league, because they weren't the stars, they weren't the star of the game. One player in particular comes to mind, George Tinsley Jr. If you didn't read another story in my book, Looking Up, and looking up once again, you'd have to read the story of George Tinsley. Bert Averett. I remember seeing Bert Averett dragging along, pulling his leg along, like, and he looked like a soldier who had come back from the Civil War. These players all marched through an arena in Indianapolis in single file, and they reminded me of troops returning home after the Civil War from books that I had read and pictures I had seen. George McGinnis having a hard time getting up a stairway to a platform. Um, it was it hurt to see somebody who had once been so strong and so muscular having such difficulties. Same with Bert Averitt, and now he has died. Uh, Goo Kennedy died. Uh, my friend Freddie Lewis, who was my key to the clubhouse of the Indiana Pacers, he'd gone to school with my wife, and he was the one who told the players, you can trust him. You can share your stories with him. He won't hurt you. And so I owe Freddie Lewis. And now he spends every day, 24-7, with his mother in an apartment in Washington, D.C., looking after her. A real love story. I mean, he and his back's bothering him. He's got a bad back. He's bent over. And uh, it hurts. It hurts me to see these guys having difficulties. I visited Bob Leonard in a hospital in uh, outside of Indianapolis. And uh, so I saw him, black and blue from a fall he had taken, with his wife, Nancy, great couple. And uh, there's an example of, I mean, I had there was a scene there, and then he told me that Larry Bird was coming to visit him the next day. And I remember thinking, boy, I'd like to be a fly on the wall tomorrow when Larry Bird's here. Larry Bird was always a difficult interview, but I'm sure in the company of Bob Leonard, who was the easiest interview you'd ever want to have, he'd have lightened up perhaps, and maybe Bob Leonard could have convinced him he didn't have to worry about me. I remember Larry Bird one time at an All-Star game, and uh, writers were surrounding him, and I was one of them while he was warming up and he was shooting three pointers from the corner and he stood there and he answered our questions and he just kept firing the ball and he must have hit about 10 straight shots while he was talking to us. And one of the writers said to him, I don't know if you can make another one like that. And, and Larry said, how much you want to bet me? And the writer put up $5 
which is big, big time money for a sports writer. At least I thought so. And Bird sinks the next shot. I mean, he just was an uncanny shooter. But Larry Bird had a difficult upbringing, you know. His father committed suicide when he was a young man. He initially went to Indiana to play basketball and just couldn't live with Bobby Knight. So he transferred to Indiana State. The rest is history. You know, he ends up playing against Magic Johnson at Michigan State and the NCAs and stuff like that. So there's so many stories out there. I may write, I don't know, I may write a third book on basketball because I have these stories, I have these files, I have these legal pads, and tomorrow I'm going to sit down and write a story that relates to Henry Aaron because I visited Henry Aaron in his home in suburban Atlanta back in uh, 1968 and uh, had an interview with him. And, of course, I thought about that when Henry Aaron recently passed away. And that's the problem today is that so many of the people that I had such wonderful memories of and so many great experiences seem to be dying off. And, of course, that makes you start wondering, you know, I think I better start clearing out my storage room of stuff because uh, my kids aren't going to want it. (laughs) Well, I don't want but it. That, this is also partially why we sort of uh, do this show, because uh, the, you know, certainly the things that are most, uh, you know, memorialized, uh, things that continue to go on, like the NBA or the NHL or whatever. Right. Uh, but even even in those realms, uh, various teams and incarnations and, and certainly the challenger leagues and all those kinds of things kind of just die off very rapidly. And, you know, this is just a, a an armchair historian's approach. Right. Where. You you, you want to kind of I think these things are important to remember because they're all part of the tableau, right? And and you probably nobody understands that better than you, having had such a long and storied career, uh, you know, chronicling all this stuff, right? These are stories that are maybe sort of you know forgotten for whatever reasons, but they're actually instrumental, right? And if you lose those threads, then you kind of lose the history of what is sort of come on be, beyond them, right? And, I, you know, I, I don't want to be sort of the old man, you know, yelling at the sky kind of thing. But <laughs> but, but the reality is, right, I mean, I think there are generations of, of fans. I mean, these these teams, um, these uh, 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 the, the, the play and the rules and, and how they're officiated, and all, the, these things can just sort of magically happen overnight, right? These things are, like you talked about, the three-point line. I mean, I don't think anybody in today's current NBA, aside from some old – uh, scholars of the game, shall we say, understand the the origination of of that or uh, the the shot clock, right? Well, let's go back to things like the ABL and the BAA and all those kinds of things, right? So I just, you know, I we kind of try to keep those sort of memories and flickering alive. And frankly, uh, the, some of the best people are the ones that were there at the at those moments, right? Either chronicling them or playing them and stuff. So while we certainly love to rely on you know, people who do the history or the documentaries and that kind of stuff. We love the first person stuff. And that's why a conversation like this has been great. Let me just ask you one sort of wrap up question. And then I want to figure out some other ways we can have some other conversations if you're if you're up. Go ahead. So uh, the, going back to this ABA and the 50th anniversary and all the sort of hardships, frankly, now that are what is your opinion about how the a, the, the the NBA should or could uh uh, let's call it make amends, uh, extend an olive branch, uh, 
do the right thing, if you will, for some of these players that were arguably, not so arguably, instrumental in what is today's modern NBA, right? Uh, the ABA's existence pushed the NBA to do a bunch of things that it probably wouldn't have done on its own. Don't uh, my Our opinion, obviously, very clear. NBA should probably do something beyond what they're not doing now. Well, I think it's too late. I think it's too late. They should have done this long ago. It was supposed to be one of the aspects of the so-called. It wasn't called a merger. It was an absorption. The NBA didn't want to call it a merger. So I think the mistake many of the basketball players made was that they thought that someday they'd have a pension. And some of them are still holding out. I just read this story about Maurice McCartley. He said he was still hoping to get a $400 a month pension. And uh, I've worked for newspapers in Miami, in New York, Philadelphia, and Pittsburgh. And I wrote for magazines in New York City and so forth. I don't get a pension from any of them. I worked for a school district for about a year and a half, about 10 years ago, and I get a small, I get $85 a month for, the, for having worked in that school. I never expected anybody to provide me with a scholarship for life. You know, I went out and hustled. And I told you that when I did all that freelance work, I mean, I used to move back and forth from the east side to the west side of New York all summer long and then cover baseball games at night at Shea Stadium or Yankee Stadium. So I, I was busy, and uh, I made money, and I invested it, took care of it, and today I'm in great financial shape where I can do books now where I'm not making any profit but I enjoy doing it, and it gives me a reason to get up in the morning and sit down and, and write. And by now, you probably have noticed something that uh, I take pride in. I am a storyteller. It's an Irish thing, I believe. And I like to read. I'm reading a book right now about Churchill's first year as prime minister of England. And the thing that strikes me is, you know, here they were, the Germans were bombing London every day. The Luftwaffe and the RAF were fighting over the skies of London, dropping bombs, dropping incendiary, causing fires. And people in London would go to work during the day, go early, and then get home and hunker down because they knew the bombs would be coming at night. We talk about this virus pandemic now, and it certainly stifles most of our normal activities, and it's a challenge. And of course, for families that have lost loved ones, it's deeply disturbing. But I, was, I thought to myself, it had to be worse being in London when the Germans were bombing the city than it is now when we don't really know where the germs are going to be and we do our best to stay away from them just as the people used to go into shelters to stay away from the bombs so history i love to read history i even like to read uh non-fiction uh history and fiction fictional history as well because i want to know and one thing that kind of disturbs me sometimes is people will look at my books and say, well, I'm not going to get that one because my son wasn't around when Maz hit the home run to win the World Series. And I say, ma'am, 
I wasn't around when General Lee signed the treaty at Appomattox that ended the Civil War. I said, it's history. It's history. You ought to read it. You owe it to yourself to read it. And I get a steady stream of correspondence, emails, and everything else from people who cared about the ABA, who cared about the World Football League, who cared about the Steelers of the 70s. My best book is a book on boxing. And I knew when I wrote it that it would be difficult to sell it because we don't have the same boxing constituency, fan constituency, that, say, the Pittsburgh Steelers enjoy, not only in Pittsburgh, but around the country. So I'll be glad to come on with you anytime that you, you need to fill space or time, whatever. And I appreciate it that you called me to share my stories with your fans. A bunch more conversations to be had with Jim O'Brien. We barely just, or just barely, yeah, scratched the surface of the many, many, many stories locked up in the mind of Jim O'Brien and his writings. But in the interim, before we get to another episode uh, and a conversational time with Jim, I highly encourage you to uh, do some homework and get at least two of his books uh, that uh, particularly talk about basketball the ones that we kind of uh, uh, dug into uh, in this little here chat. Uh, the first one is called Looking Up from the ABA to the NBA to the WNBA and the NCAA, a basketball memoir that came out a couple of years back. And the relatively new one, I think it came out maybe last year, called Looking Up Once Again, a basketball memoir. It's a sequel, if you will. Uh, you want ABA, you want ABL, you want NBA, uh, all of those and great stories uh, one of a kind and uh, in-depth for sure. Uh, and you'll find those books and many, many others. It's a great uh, couple of books on the Steelers and there's one on boxing and Chuck Knoll and all kinds of Pittsburgh sports generally, fantastic stuff. Uh, you'll find them all at jimobriansportsauthor.com. Jim O'Brien, sports author, all one word, just like it uh, sounds, .com. And uh, you will see... Uh, all of the great uh, writings from Jim, you can uh, find yourselves a quick link uh, to purchase them. If you want to order in bulk, you can, there's an order form there. Uh, you want to contact Jim directly and say hello, by all means. You see where he's going to be to hopefully sign some of these books. Uh, all of that stuff, again, Jim O'Brien, sportsauthor.com. Uh, let's see. Our website, while you're on the interwebs, is goodseatsstillavailable.com. Of course, you'll find this episode number, what is it, 223? Dear Lord, that many, my goodness. Well, hopefully some of them are entertaining for you, like this one, hopefully. Uh, all of the episodes that we've done in the past, as well as in the future, will be posted on that website. So if you miss a week, you miss a month, you check out for a year, whatever, they're all going to be sort of there for you. You can download them. You can uh, embed them on your website if you want to point people to a particular episode that you like. We, we certainly encourage that. Uh, you want to just stream them right off the site. Do whatever you like. You can do all of that. Uh, from our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Of course, the easiest way is just to simply subscribe, gosh darn it, to uh, the show. Uh, whatever podcast uh, feed mechanism you choose to use, we're probably there. So uh, by all means, don't hesitate to subscribe or follow or do whatever you want to do to ensure that you get each and every episode each 
and every week, as we like to do and publish uh, to our schedule, uh, despite all the odds against it sometimes, frankly. Uh, you want to send us some email? Go ahead. Please do so at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, let's do that, too. You can do uh, that on Facebook by searching up Good Seats Still Available. You can find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. And on uh, Twitter, you will find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, what else? We got an email newsletter we send out each and every week. You can find a link to that and subscribe to that on our website. Uh, what else? Jerry Payne. Yeah, uh, you know him, you love him, you can't live without him. Uh, at least I can't. And uh, thank you, kind sir, once again for your editorial wizardry. Uh, Jerry Payne, Audio Excellence, uh, a humble bow in your general direction. And uh, we thank you, the great listeners out there. Thanks for all your uh, your input and uh, more good stuff coming up next week. Who knows what it'll be, but uh, I'm sure it'll be fun and fabulous uh, as it was this week. Until next week, take care. Thank you for listening and uh, be safe, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.